These words again beginning in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. May I begin, as I mentioned earlier, with the confession that God has not given me a full understanding of all the truths that are contained in this special passage. Listen carefully again to these words, especially of verses 18 and 19. Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he, the Lord Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now though I do not have a good understanding, as good an understanding at least, as I would like, we do need to push on ahead and gain as much as God will be gracious to reveal to us in these words. The first words here, beginning in verse 18, are fairly straightforward. And they're very familiar to us because they are part of the pure gospel that is proclaimed all through the New Testament. And especially it's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 where there the apostle Paul proclaimed, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now those words are essentially the same as these that we read here in verse 18. Of 1 Peter, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit. This is the gospel in one of its simplest forms, telling us clearly and plainly that, that it is only in and through the death of Christ on the cross that you and I are saved and that we're brought into an eternal relationship with God the Father. But then... Verse 19 adds in a very mysterious component to this otherwise very simple statement of the gospel. In verse 19 we read, In which he, the Lord Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. These words are so few and they're simple. But they have been the source and the impetus for many wide-ranging thoughts and many hopes within the hearts of many Christians. For those who would read these words in verse 19 in a very literal manner and not take into account many of the other contrasting verses in other portions of the Scripture, it would seem from these words that in those hours just following Jesus' death and burial, that he took on a very special mission one of preaching to unsaved people who had died at other times and were in the pits of torment awaiting their final judgment. And that same sort of possibility is suggested again over in chapter 4, verse 5, 
Listen. Verse 5 of chapter 4 of 1 Peter. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now recall in Hebrews 9, we're told that there is appointed unto you and me, to everyone once to die, and then the judgment. Those words again. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why, and listen, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Again, very, very unfamiliar words. Now both of these passages hint at something. They hint at the possibility of one more opportunity, a second chance, a kind of second chance at salvation. And many within both the Protestant churches and the Catholic churches have grabbed hold of belief in that possibility. So much so that Catholic theologians have developed a whole system of doctrines and theology to support their beliefs. And in doing that, they have created a kind of waiting room called purgatory, where those who have died without Christ would go and await a final judgment. But they've added, with the additional provision that with some diligent prayer and intercession by the right people, intermediaries and priests, those people waiting there in purgatory might be able to be prayed out of purgatory into heaven. Now unfortunately, this Catholic doctrine came into very serious disrepute in earlier centuries when Catholic church leaders seized upon the opportunity while family members of deceased ones were in crisis and in grief to extort money and property from them by giving them the belief that they could buy, literally buy their deceased loved ones out of purgatory and save them from hell. They were called special dispensations. But now, even though those corrupt practices in bringing shame and embarrassment to the Catholic Church, they have ceased now. You don't hear of people trying to buy their loved ones' ways out of purgatory. But the basic doctrines and basic practices have survived in the Catholic Church. And they are still today actively pursued in the hope that these deceased loved ones can be prayed out of purgatory and into heaven. A question. Is there any evidence in these scriptures that lend credence to the Catholic belief concerning purgatory? That's argued by a lot of theologians both ways. Some would say that the parable that Jesus gave about Lazarus and the rich man is at least an evidence of a place of waiting after we die. Listen to these words in Luke 16. This portion is quite lengthy, but as we learned when we studied these scriptures in Sunday school just very recently, we need to read all of these words to get a fuller understanding of them. I'd like for you to turn to this if you would. This is Luke chapter 16, verse 19. I'd like you to follow along with me 
Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Not the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. This is another Lazarus. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger into water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In these words, Jesus gives us a very special window into the time and into the place and the conditions that you and I will experience when we die when we step from this life into the eternal realms. For those of us who have received Christ as our Savior and Lord, we'll be carried by the angels into paradise. What a wonderful thought. We'll be carried by the angels into paradise, here called Abraham's bosom, a place of joy and peace and comfort and rest. But for those who did not in this life receive Christ as their Savior and Lord, they find themselves immediately in a place of horrible suffering, here called torment, and described as anguish in flames. Now from this parable and, and from other places in the Scriptures, we've come to understand that yes, there really is an intermediate state of existence for our souls and spirits. Mysterious places within the heavenly realms that we studied about in Ephesians, especially chapter 6 of Ephesians. Mysterious places in the heavenly realms here called paradise and torment. That's where we will go. All of us. We will go to one of those. Everyone will go to one of those to await the final sentence of our judgment to be carried out. The righteous then going into the heaven of heavens and the unrighteous into eternal hell. But contrary to the beliefs held by the Catholic folks, 
once we arrive in one of those places, paradise or torment, there is very little other evidence in these scriptures to suggest that someone might be moved from one of those places to the other, especially from torment into paradise. And these scriptures that we just read here in this passage in Luke, they really do seem to confirm emphatically that to be true, that no further mercy will be shown, no relief from from suffering and no passing from one to the other, especially over that great chasm from one place to the other. Now, some have argued that the case given here in this parable was an extreme case, very a very sinful, rich man who daily witnessed the suffering of poor Lazarus and could have helped him over and over again, refusing to help poor Lazarus or to give him comfort. And so here, this rich man was a clear-cut sinner deserving of torment. And those who would argue that point would continue by asking, but what about all of those far less sinful people who live in places and cultures where they seldom, if ever, hear the name of Christ and they never learn that they need Him to be their Savior and Lord? What about them? Could they possibly be the ones to whom Jesus might have preached? Because it sure does seem more in keeping with the nature of God that He would have provided some form of grace and mercy to every soul that has ever lived. And that part of their argument really is true. It is absolutely the nature of God to provide grace and mercy to every creature. But then most all of the mainline church scholars, the mainline church scholars such as Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, contend that God's revelation of Himself is accomplished through His works of nature. One theologian words it this way. Listen carefully. This theologian says, When people wonder how God can judge those who've never heard the gospel, we should direct their attention to Romans 1 18 and following, where God declares that all are without excuse. Read these words with me if you would. Turn to Romans 1, Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. And mark this in your scripture because all of Romans 1 is just, uh, has some real special message for us. Romans 1. Now this is verse 18 and this begins just after we're told that I am not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It goes on to say that the righteous live from faith to faith and it is by faith that we're saved. The righteous shall live by faith. And then listen to verse 18. And here's where he's talking about how God is revealed to us. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, listen, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And we're talking about unsaved people. For what... what, can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, listen, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now this commentator goes on saying in his commentary, people are not judged on the basis of a gospel they've never heard, but because of their unrepentant refusal to respond in worship and gratitude when confronted with the unmistakable and inescapable clarity of the revelation God has made of Himself in creation. God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived. He goes on to say, No one can appeal to ignorance or the lack of opportunity to believe. God has done everything necessary to establish their moral accountability. He concludes that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Folks, these words in Romans 1 declare to us that there is not one soul that has ever lived or ever will live on the earth that can appeal in judgment that they did not know that there was a God and that they would someday be accountable to Him. And that understanding bespeaks the Arminian doctrine that declares that God's Holy Spirit pours out His presence upon all men and women regardless of where they live and the culture that they live in, convicting them of sin and leaving them without excuse. But again, with all of these things being so, what does God mean and what is His purpose in giving us these special words that we're studying here in our text. Those words in verse 19 of chapter 3 and then also verse 5 of chapter 4, verse 19, in which He, the Lord Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And verse 5 of, of chapter 4, but they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that those judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. A possibility that would allow for some form of a second chance has such great appeal within most all of our hearts. It certainly does in mine because it's an unfortunate truth that probably most of the people that I know, that you know, including some very dearly loved family members and relatives, have died probably never having put their trust in Christ for salvation. And the thought of them spending an eternity in the burning pit of hell is heartbreaking to us. So then, what are we to conclude concerning these words? Is there a possibility that in those intervening hours between His death and His resurrection, the Lord Jesus might have actually gone and preached a gospel message to those in torment? Is that a possibility? I confess to you that I don't know exactly what those words mean. I wish I did. And I wish I could explain them to you. But I do not know. But I do know that something did take place, really did take place, because at least with one 
special group of people. And that's talked about here in verse 20. Listen to these words. I'll begin in verse 19, but listen carefully to the words in verse 20. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Again, I confess that these words are so unusual in what they say and in their implied purpose that I really haven't gained a an adequate understanding of them. And I have to conclude that for the time being at least, these words will probably remain somewhat a mystery at least that we'll ponder until we see Jesus and He explains this to us. But be that as it may, as I've shared with you in the past, I really do love the mysteries of God. I love the mysteries of God. I don't have to understand them all. And I do appreciate mystery because mystery is what stimulates faith. It excites our faith and it fuels our faith. And so it will remain a mystery to us probably. But may I offer one final thought before we close. And I warn you that these last words that I'm getting ready to say are not clearly evidenced in these scriptures. But with that being said, because God has given us all of the scriptures that I've quoted for us today, some lending credence to the idea that there might possibly be a second chance, while others would deny that possibility. Perhaps God, listen, perhaps God will again be a God of what I would call and. The God of and. Rather than the God of either or. Because so often we get these understandings from Scripture and and even outside of Scripture. We get to believe that something has to be either this or this. When in fact some things can be and. Either and. And so maybe there is a possibility that there can be a reconciliation between that which would seem to indicate that there is no possibility and that these scriptures that hint of a possibility. That given under special and perhaps even rare circumstances a possibility of, of some reprieve for some lost people who might never have heard and understood the gospel. There might be a reprieve. I don't know. Who knows? Now again, those last words were only intended to provoke you to search the Scriptures further and to find God's real meaning for these unusual words of Scripture. So I invite you to study them carefully and ask the Holy Spirit to explain these words to you. Because you and I are not going to be able to figure them out on our own. I'll close with these words again. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Let's pray.